Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 57 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending July 16, 2017, the Father's Day edition. This week, Jay and I are guest hosted by Jay's daughters, Millie and Michaela. They lead us in a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance-related stories, including the Covington and Burlington report on corporate culture at Uber, the uh, guilty plea by Swiss banker Jorge Luis Azugria for laundering money uh, for FIFA officials, the Department of Justice civil forfeiture complaints seeking an additional $540 million in assets allegedly bought from the looted Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB. We discussed the death of Adnan Khashoggi, the Saudi arms dealer in the middle of the giant 1970s bribery scandal that led to the enactment of the FCPA. Jay talks about or uh, the con- continued CCO struggle with outdated technology and siloed data based upon a report by uh, Ethosphere and Conversant. He also brings us up to date on a Brazilian prosecutor turned lawyer who's under an ethics investigation following the JNF settlement. Jay also previews his weekend report. I uh, continue to talk about the release of my new book, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement. And we wish a happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Hi, I'm Michaela. And I'm Millie. We would like to welcome you to This Week in the FCPA. With Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and our dad, Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen. Today, Tom and Dad will look at the following topics. Con... Covington and Burling releases a report on corporate culture at Uber. A Swiss banker pleads guilty to laundering money for FIFA officials. DOJ files civil complaints against $540 million in assets illegally bought with money looted from a Malayan fund. An arms dealer in the middle of the the giant 1970s bribery bribery scandal that led to enactment of the FCP died this past week. CCO still struggles with old technology soloed data. Brazilian prosecutor turned lawyer under ethics investigation following J and F settlement. My dad previews his weekend report and Tom talks about his new book, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement. So take it away, guys! Well, that was certainly an introduction, Jay. Uh, Thank you for uh, enlisting uh, the girls to uh, help introduce this episode. Well, they've been looking uh, forward to it all year, and uh, they uh, they put some work in this morning, so uh, I guess now it's our time to turn to put some work in. All right. Well, we started uh, the list there was the Covington and Burlington, or the Holder Report, and um, maybe we can hold that one at the end because I think that one should uh, – I'd really like to take some time going through that one in a little detail. But um, – we had a uh, another development in the FIFA case, and frankly, I think it's a significant development, Jay. We had the um, one of the Swiss bankers, a fellow named Jorge 
Luis uh, Arzaguia, an Argentinian, but working in a Swiss bank called uh, Julius Vieira, who laundered money for uh, at least one former FIFA official, and I say former, but former because he's deceased. FIFA official was uh, identified as, um, well, he was an, uh, the head of the Argentinian um, uh, Football um, Association. Um, but it really shows how the investigation and enforcement uh, against FIFA has really changed that now we're getting to the bankers who were involved in the money laundering. He laundered between uh, or around 25 millions in bribes and kickbacks over five years. Um, obviously, if you pay a bribe, you've got to launder the money somewhere. So it's a really interesting uh, development. And I think it points to something that we really don't consider as much in our FCPA compliance practice, which is exactly the point I just articulated that if you have a bribe, you've got to launder the money somewhere and somebody's got to help you launder the money. And if our uh, government would move towards the people who help facilitate the laundering of the money, in addition to the people who pay the bribes, I think it would be a more robust uh, holistic enforcement practice around bribery and corruption. So applause for the U.S. government. And, and I have to say that uh, this this one last point really tickled me, that he was, uh, of course, he's a Swiss banker, even though he's Argentinian, obviously very professional to the point where the indictment said that he arranged for the money being laundered, i.e. the bribe payments, which was held by the um, Argentinian official who died, to be distributed to the to his heirs after his death, so that uh, even after the death of the uh, bribe taker, he was still on the job laundering the money. And I don't think you can uh, really ask more of your banker than that. So um, kudos to the Department of Justice, kudos to the Swiss officials. We may start seeing uh, some uh, uh, additional prosecutions uh, around uh, this part of the bribery scandal, and I really think that. FCPA compliance practitioners need to pay more attention to the money laundering uh, aspects of this and seeing who they're doing business with, and more importantly, who their third parties are doing business with. Great, great points. And uh, yeah, the, the, the Swiss are very thorough, aren't they? Very thorough. Uh, next, we had um, a just a very interesting development in the 1MDB scandal, and that was that this week the United States uh, amended its civil forfeiture complaints to add another $540 million in property. And uh, the this is where the U.S. government tries to get the proceeds of properties uh, which were uh, purchased with illicit funds. Uh, and uh, the 1MDB scandal has several billion dollars stolen from it. And now the Department of Justice is up to 1.6, and and I've heard numbers as high as 1.7 billion that it's seeking to reclaim. Although you do have to wonder about some of the things they're trying to uh, to uh, take back, including the rights to the movie Dumber, Dumber and Dumber, starring Jim Carrey. Um, nevertheless, uh, that was owned by Red Granite Pictures, uh, which uh, it got in trouble. Uh, people were recognized that for uh, producing The Wolf of Wall Street. But um, monies for that picture came from a person, uh, Jay Lowe, who is alleged to have been part of the operation that looted the uh, Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund. So this is really a significant development, Jay, in the uh, 1MDB 
scandal and where the U.S. is seeking to obtain funds. And if the U.S. really presses this, this could be a very valuable tool for the U.S. government to use. Uh, once again, if you think of, of uh, bribery and corruption, the money has to go somewhere. And if it's not laundered uh, through banks, it's going to be used to purchase items. And so here we had uh, money stolen from 1MDB, utilized for uh, purchase, personal purchase purchases, uh, used uh, to give uh, to people like or entities like Red Granite Pictures, a movie production company who then now face the uh, the for, uh, prospect of they've had to re- release uh, all of the profits, future profits of the Wolf of Wall Street, um, or at least put them in escrow pending the outcome of these uh, discussions. So um, lots of uh, significant developments on that front, Jay. And it kind of uh, segues quite nicely into um, – Another story that we have to do with bribery and money laundering and uh, Adnan Khashoggi, the uh, Saudi arms dealer in the middle of a 1970 bribery scandal within the defense industry that ultimately led to the birth of the FCPA. Uh, He passed away in London at 81. And in this article here, it says, um, you know, he had to do something to wash his dirty laundry, rather dirty money as well. So he owned a dozen homes, the Guardian said in a June 7th obituary, and a thousand suits. He spent $70 million on his third yacht and $40 million on a customized Douglas DC-8 described as a flying Las Vegas discotheque. So uh, to your point, there's always money that's being laundering, laundered, and uh, sometimes it's going into hard assets like Disco DC-8s. Uh, I wonder what his uh, shoe collection was like. Um, I, I don't know. Did he ever go to New Hampshire to buy shoes? Uh, I, I can't say that we have any uh, yellow carbon slips with his name on it, but you, you know, it's possible con- he could have been a mail-order client. You can neither confirm nor deny uh, uh, that he was present in uh, New Hampshire at any time in the relevant period. That's that's really interesting. The um, he was really a colorful figure, and I can still recall an interview he did on 60 Minutes, where uh, Mike Wallace, you know, accused him of of um, bribery, and corruption, and he just looked at his ring and twirled his diamonds, and he said, uh, "Yep, I made a business decision, and I executed upon it." and uh, he was a model for a, a very interesting character in a Harold Robbins novel, for those who might remember Harold Robbins' novels, The Pirate, which was published in 1974, really larger than life, but spoke to the problems at that time in the uh, middle part of the uh, 20th century where bribery and corruption was really rampant. And um, I thought his the way he handled that 60-minute interview was exactly the reason that they needed something like the FCPA because there was no law that prevented it. He said, I made a business judgment. I did it. I kept the money when appropriate, and I paid the money when appropriate. So um, very interesting character, a uh, little history there for uh, FCPA aficionados going forward. Jay, we had a report from our good friend Arti Maharaja, Maharaja, I think. Hopefully I didn't. Butcher that too bad, Artie, but I always just call her Artie, in the FCPA blog. And it was um, her blog was about a Ethosphere conversant report, which talked about some of the struggles that CCOs still have with both siloed data and outdated technology. And 
um, as with all ethosphere studies, and certainly those where they work with conversant, it's very interesting, and it shows really uh, a gap, Jay, that I think is, is going to be important for corporations and compliance practitioners to try to, to bridge to bring compliance really into the, the 21st century in terms of uh, data, data analytics, and data analysis, but you've got to get the data. And that's where technology uh, comes into play. Now, the services that affiliated monitors have may be perhaps less technology-driven than your prior employer. Um, you guys may be more people services-driven. But uh, folks like yourself that are vendors in this space, I think, are going to really have to step up and help compliance officers and help compliance practitioners really bridge this gap because when you're inside of a corporation, you're generally dealing, and as you would well know, uh, you're dealing with the day-to-day fires, and you don't really uh, usually have the opportunity or the budget to develop a tool. So it's going to be to the vendor community that I think the compliance community is going to look towards to try to help develop those tools. So having been on that side of the fence, how would you see that issue? Um, I think part of it is going to be um, you know, technology. And a part of it is going to be, um, you know, brain power. And, uh, you know, there's a, a real opportunity here to work within the Internet of Things and take these multiple data streams and, and figure out how you tie them together. So I'm sure folks in the big four are going to be playing in that space. And then, you know, as we've seen over the years, when we go to different conferences, you see the folks out there who uh, are in charge of these different streams, whether they're uh, hotline um, report and case management software, whether there's software that's taking a look at uh, people having taken training and, and done attestations. So somebody is going to you know, have the holy grail if they get out there and they come up with an easy way of not only combining these data streams, but being able to put together certain profiles that you can leverage going forward to uh, make proper business decisions. And this goes back to a lot of the stuff that you're evangelizing about, about how you have to build your processes and procedures and your controls into the DNA of corporate culture. So um, this is something that's always been on our radar and I think it'll be very interesting in the next half of the year to see uh, what type of first mover solutions we start to see. So Jay, you picked up an article about uh, some issues down in Brazil. You wanna take up the mantle with this one? Yeah, uh, it, it sounds a little bit fishy and um, you know, I, I guess that makes sense. Uh, that it would be in Brazil. But um, what seems to have happened is that there was an attorney at Trench Rossi Wanatabi who was representing JNF Investmentos uh, in their negotiations with the Brazilian authorities. And prior to him joining Trench Rossi, he was a prosecutor at Brazil's Federal Prosecution Service, the MPF. And uh, what happened was evidently they got to an impasse in negotiations and uh, the company, uh, JNF, decided to move on and uh, part ways with Trench Rossi. And then they found a new law firm to help them 
negotiate and get to an agreement. And it appears to me from the way I'm reading this is that this uh, Marcelo Miller seems to have directly left the government. And that question now is whether or not he was working on the matter from the government side and whether there was a conflict of interest with him negotiating for the client while at Trench Rossi. So, um, you know, nothing really is surprising in Brazil. And it just really, um, it, it would be a shame to, to wrap up uh, a prestigious law firm like that into, uh, you know, what's happening with Car Wash. And the question is, is do we read any further into that uh, exodus several months ago of some of the top attorneys who were at Trent Rossi and have now struck out on their own to form their new law firm. You there, Tom? Yes, the um, some very interesting issues raised. Uh, as to your question, I'm not sure we're going to get uh, any answers, at least uh, on the record from uh, former Trent Rossi uh, uh, attorneys uh, for some time on that. But um, pre pretty uh, from at least the article, it appeared there was a pretty strong indicia of a conflict of interest. So, Jay, uh, we we held off uh, on discussion about the Covington and Burling report. Uh, the, uh, what I've called the Holder Report on Uber, because I really wanted to uh, take a deep dive into that. This is one of the most remarkable documents I've seen for from corporate America in quite some time, uh, at least since the um, Wells Fargo report came out earlier or uh, last month. But the um, antics at Uber really beyond, are beyond even, uh, I think, what uh, National Lampoon tried to portray in Animal House. And I, I'm, uh, are the girls still in the room? No, we, uh, we are alone, so you can use um, adult concepts. Well, uh, when you have to write in a report to a board of directors that, you know, it would really be a good idea if you had a policy about no illegal drug use at work during core business hours, it would be a good thing. Um, that really speaks of a culture that is completely out of control. Uh, in the same paragraph, they, they made the same comments about alcohol. Uh, I would note for the record that alcohol is not illegal in California. So that, uh, but they did say that uh, really, uh, Uber should, quote, encourage responsible drinking, end quote. And it should limit the amount of alcohol that's available in the office, de-emphasize alcohol as a component of work events, uh, and <clears throat> otherwise take appropriate action to discipline and address inappropriate employee conduct fueled by alcoholic consumption. Um, uh, so that really, I think, speaks to the culture at Uber when you've got to suggest that perhaps you would want to consider a policy of uh, no illegal drug use during office hours at work. And um, the same with alcohol. But in addition to these somewhat salacious added, uh, recommendations, and there was, uh, of course, recommendations about office sex as well that I won't go into, there were some pretty good recommendations. And I would uh, urge every compliance officer to read this really as a way to benchmark where their program might be. The... Um, it starts off with changes to senior leadership, so it gives you an opportunity to consider uh, not the 
really more than the tone at the top because it's about conduct. And how do you measure the conduct of your leaders? And that's, I think, a subtle shift, yet an important shift in the way people need to think about senior executive leadership in uh, and culture. There's a section on in board oversight. I was extraordinarily pleased where they suggested the creation of an ethics and culture committee on the board. Uh, they called for an independent chairperson, uh, independence, more independence of the board, um, using uh, compensation as an incentive to hold senior leaders accountable, uh, to um, have a board member in charge of overseeing the recommendations that were accepted by the board. There's a substantial section on internal controls. Uh, Internal controls are there to protect the company and protect the company from risk. And the paucity of internal controls to the point where they actually had to suggest that if employees are going to be reimbursed for business expenses, they had to fill out a form and attach a receipt. Um, and I would ask you, Jay, to relate to me how many companies have you ever worked for that paid employee expense reimbursements without receipts? And I think I know the answer to that. Um, so uh, that's that was the kind of looseness you had. And this is not a 12-person startup. You know, this is a, a, a multi-thousand uh, I think 12,000 employees worldwide now, um, uh, t- uh, $65 billion corporation, and they didn't have those basic um, controls in place. There were uh, uh, a reformulation of the company's cultural values and to put in a really appropriate code of conduct. There was a section on training. There was a section on uh, basically anti-discrimination and anti-harassment. Harassment was a huge problem, and the harassment of Susan Fowler, the engineer, former engineer at Uber, who posted a blog back in February that started this whole process. Uh, she's uh, uh, that her contribution is noted in the report. But there was clearly a problem with discrimination and harassment. There's um, clearly a problem with um, the entire structure of uh, HR uh, kowtowing basically to the uh, business unit. Uh, changes in employee employment and employee policies and practices, and addressing employee retention. Uh, Travis Kalanick, the uh, CEO, has taken an indefinite leave of absence. Leave of absence. There are fourteen. Um, he had fourteen direct reports, and those people are now running the company. Uh, when you run, uh, when everybody's in charge, nobody's in charge. Uh, that is an unmitigated recipe for disaster. So they're going to have to bring in some senior leadership somewhere, and I, I mean soon, 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 soon. So it was just a incredible report, um, but it's it's even more than um, what what I've seen and what you've seen in this report, Jay, because literally this week when the board of directors sat in front of the Uber employees. Um, to deliver the recommendations of this report, one of which was to have greater diversity on the board of directors in the form of additional women. Ariane Huffington's on the board, uh, well known for founding the Huffington Post, and she suggested that having a woman on the board would lead to having other women on the board, and that would be a good thing. One of the her co-board members responded, well, if we have more women on the board, we'll certainly have more talking. 
And uh, that was David Bonderman who made that comment. He made it in front of the entire employee base. And reports said there was a palpable pale of silence of the employees after he said it. Um, you know, we've all said things that we wish we hadn't said. We've all uh, lipped off. Maybe it was in a uh, alcohol-induced fueled discussion um, during or after business hours. But this is where you have a board member in front of an entire company uh, delivering uh, really sobering news. Uh, sorry to use that pun. Uh, but uh, and, and making a completely inappropriate remark, and and that may speak to the problems of the board. If they're so flippant with that kind of comment, uh, you know, what does that say about the board and the conduct of the board? So, um, I got, I don't know if you can call a car company a train wreck, but um, it really had one of the the most uh, intolerable cultures that you will ever see. And so I've ranted, raved enough. What, uh, what were your thoughts, Jay? Well, um, I've got something that I just sent you that we're going to put into the um, show notes. And there was an interview yesterday on NPR entitled The Investor Who Took on Uber in Silicon Valley. And it's about this woman, Frida Kapoor Klein. And uh, she was an early stage investor in Uber and uh, when all this uh, sexual harassment uh, started and no action was taken, uh, she wrote a letter to the board of Uber. And um, you can imagine that the other boys in the Silicon Valley did not take too uh, kindly to her speaking out. So it's, uh, it's about an eight-minute interview that you can see uh, how um, basically some of the other venture capital firms decided to try to go after her and um, take away her portfolio companies or really bad mouth the company. So again, this whole corporate culture, um, whether it's, it definitely stinks at Uber. The question is, is uh, how rampant is it without uh, within the rest of the valley? And it seems that over the past several years that there, there definitely is a lack of diversity um, a lack of different opinions. And uh, one of the gentlemen who was interviewed from um, one of the VC funds basically made the, he was an apologist for Uber and said that, well, you know, it's a hard driving culture and you got to make your profits and you got to get ahead and you got to kill the competition. And then when you get to that point, you can think about adding back some culture and ethics. And, um, you know, that's where Uber's at right now. And it's probably not a fun place to be. So uh, let's just say that that's a correct statement. And uh, you have to be hard charging when you start, maybe when it's 12 guys in the frat house sitting around drinking beers or uh, other, um, you are hard charging and you do do things along the lines that you uh, that are outlined here. Um, at some point, you've got to change. And at some point when you're going to grow up be a big boy and become a real corporation, you've got to make that shift. And uh, clearly Uber was not prepared to do that. But the comments that uh, you just referenced made clear that VCs uh, or uh, startups are really not thinking through this process. So maybe, Jay, this would lead to kind of a, 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 I don't know, a niche industry or a niche consulting practice, but something to help startup companies uh, put 
the backbone of an ethics and compliance program in place, such as appropriate policies and procedures, such as appropriate internal controls that can be there as a framework, not inhibit the strategic growth of the company, but be there when the company does grow. And then you can put on specific policies and procedures and flesh that out going forward. Uh, that didn't seem to be uh, uh, considered at all at Uber. And uh, from the comments that you made, it sounds like uh, that's really not something that the Valley really thinks about uh, enough. So um, Matt Kelly also had some interesting thoughts on that. Uh, as well, and uh, I'll link to uh, his piece in the show notes. But it's uh, it's really a fascinating study. Where Uber goes uh, from here uh, really is it's still an open question. Uh, I am a passionate Uberite in terms of utilizing their uh, services. I found it to be a um, uh, a great service that um, the customers my customer my satisfaction is customers high. The employees I talk to are the independent contractors I talk to as drivers. Their satisfaction is high. Obviously, the company's making money hand over fist. So something is very right about that. But if they continue to um, have problems along the lines of these, uh, I'm not sure I can support a company like that. And I may have to switch over to Lyft. Um, and if the marketplace starts to vote with their feet, uh, that that could really spell uh, some significant trouble for uh, Uber as well, Jay. All great points. Um, what did you think about the uh, the reference to the Rooney Rule within the uh, um, within the uh, investigation piece from Covington? Well, for those who don't know what the Rooney Rule is, the Rooney Rule was uh, put in place in the NFL uh, at the suggestion of Dan Rooney, and it was to try to increase the diversity at the senior executive level of NFL teams, and uh, it would requ required each team to um, interview a minority candidate uh, for, and indeed it was an African-American candidate for a head coaching position uh, going forward. Um, I guess uh, initially I would uh, say that such affirmative action would be uh, appropriate, but although in the report it, it uh, suggested the Rooney Rule for women and other underrepresented populations uh, for key positions, not just African-Americans. I was, um, I thought it was a little out of place to reference the NFL in uh, this otherwise um, pretty good report. So I just, uh, I was a little befuddled by that, tying the recommendation directly to the Rooney Rule. I agree with the recommendation, although I would have written it just as the standalone recommendation without referencing the NFL. Yeah, it, it, it kind of stuck out to me too. And um, I think who, who did the, the Brady report? Was that Paul Weiss or was that also Covington? Um, I don't recall. All right. Well, for those, uh, Minutia geeks like myself, uh, we can look it up. But what's happening? Are, is it at the is it at Minute Maid Park or is it at Fenway this weekend? Oh, uh, they are at Minute Maid this weekend. Are you going? Uh, no, we are going to see uh, Chicago and the Doobie Brothers. Wow, the rock and roll weekend for the Foxes. That's my Father's Day present. 
Is, is that a is that a Vegas show or is that a local show? No, no, it's uh, the Woodlands, Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion. We've got a hotel and everything. Wow! Well, happy early Father's Day. Yep, yep. So that's uh, that's my Father's Day present. But yes, the Boston Red Sox. I would say the lowly Boston Red Sox are in playing the uh, league leading Houston Astros. Um, I, I think this will probably be a, a, a good litmus test uh, of both teams. Uh, the Sox seem to be coming around. The pitching staff is getting together, and the uh, Astros have just been phenomenal, uh, hovering around 700 baseball. So uh, what, what was the issue before? People couldn't watch them on TV, but you could see them at the stadium. Has that been rectified? Yes. So the uh, owner was in a dispute with uh, the largest cable company or the owner, the the Astros were in a dispute on carriage fees. That has been resolved. Uh, the Astros have lost their um, their two top starting pitchers went on the DL this week. So it's going to be interesting to see how they uh, um, react to that. But I have to say it's it's been a heck of a run. So uh, I think they were won 14 straight, which is the most they'd ever won. Uh, at one time, um, playing as, as well as a team could play. Uh, obviously, it's June and not October, uh, but uh, we'll see where it goes. So do you have a, uh, anything going on for a weekend report? Yes, I do. Um, kind of uh, with uh, a friendly tip of the cap to Artie and uh, the report from Ethisphere uh, and Conversant. Uh, since last week, I talked about uh, everyone in Witness getting together to build the barn. Uh, this week, I'm going to talk about silos and uh, talk about some of those things we discussed earlier about how do you, from a technology and um, you know a consulting perspective, how do you take those different data streams and, and tie them together and take that um, knowledge so you can use it throughout the uh, company from uh, ethics and compliance and uh, risk mitigation perspective. Uh, when do you think that's coming out? Oh, I don't, it depends on um, how good Father's Day is. It it, it, it could be this afternoon or, or more likely on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we may not be able to, I may have to uh, edit the show notes uh, after the podcast goes up because I'm going to try and get this uh, posted on uh, Friday, if not Saturday morning. So, uh, well, we'll look forward to that. And, uh, we have the girls. Millie and Michaela said you're going to tell us about your book. Oh, yes. Uh, once again, uh, the book uh, still out, uh, 2016, the year in corporate FCPA enforcement, uh, the only book out which uh, wraps up 2016, uh, the greatest year in FCPA enforcement, uh, both dollar-wise and case-wise, number of cases-wise. I review all of the enforcement actions, the corporate enforcement actions. I give you lessons learned. I tell you what you really needed to need to take away from 2016. I highlight what the regulators uh, told us uh, in uh, in last year as well. So if you're a compliance practitioner, this is the volume for you on 2016, and it will really lead you into uh, 2017. We've had a paucity of cases so far. Uh, in 2017. So what happened in 2016 is still re really the most relevant uh, 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 information available to you. I hope uh, you will check it out. I've linked to it in the show notes. It's available at the Compliance Compliance Week Sister Publishing Corporation, ARC Publishing, and I uh, hope you will check it out. So Jay, we've got the girls uh, to take us home uh, this week, so uh, we don't need uh, the Jay Rosen um, 
farewell. Uh, so I will just say I will look forward uh, to uh, visiting with you uh, next week. Great. And happy Father's Day out there to all the dads. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining Tom Fox and Jay Rosen for this week in FCPA for the week ending June 15th, 2017. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to our special Father's Day edition of This Week in FCPA. I certainly enjoy, hope you enjoyed uh, Michaela and Millie's introduction and tribute to their dad, Jay Rosen. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help in the rankings and also get the word out about the only weekly podcast on FCPA and compliance-related events. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact us. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com and Jay is at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week as we wrap up the week's FCPA and compliance-related events. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.